Hi folks, Neil here. We want to help answer all your questions about London. That's why you can listen to this guide in the Circa app for iPhone and get all the show notes, pictures, maps, and links you need to find everything we tell you about in this London guide. Best of all, in the Circa app, you can message a Circa concierge. You can get any question about London answered by real people right here. The latest galleries, West End shows, how to do the big attractions right, how to use the tube, where to find an absolutely beautiful Sunday roast right now. We are giving you a friend to ask anywhere in the world. Real people, no AI ever. And for a limited time, it's completely free. The Circa Travel app is available in the App Store right now or at circatravel.com. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welcome to Circa. In this episode, we'll be listing a lot of places, people and wonderful things to eat in the world's capital city, London. We're going to be telling you a lot, but don't worry. There'll be maps, notes, and info on the places mentioned in these guides in the Circa app, as well as all the other full guide episodes to this wonderful city. So just sit back, put your headphones on, and enjoy this culinary trip to London. Let's go down the pub. Welcome to Circa. Love the world you live in and we'll help you explore it. The unofficial prize for the worst food in the world has forever gone year after year, decade after decade, to one place. Britain. Haggis, tripe, dry mashed potatoes, black blood pudding, oily tasteless fish and chips, overcooked veggies and tough as old boots meat, slimy jellied eels, radioactive looking mushy peas, scotch eggs, pork pies, smelly marmite, ludicrous spotted dick, weak tea, warm beer, the culinary black sheep of Europe and its bland, sloppy, unpresentable plates of nosh have been mocked forever. Travel writer Bill Marsano said, the British Empire was created as a byproduct of generations of desperate Englishmen roaming the world in search of a decent meal. That was maybe once true, but what's happened to the food scene over the last couple of decades in England's always booming capital city is astounding.
London is now considered by many to be one of the 10 best places to eat in the entire world. And in some way, it's all down to the wonderful centuries-old pastime of going down the pub. I'm Jennifer Carr, a travel writer, Brit and foodie. And in this episode, I'm going to tell you why London's pubs can not only offer some of the finest ales in the world, but also some of the most eclectic food and unique atmospheres. This is a story about how celebrity chefs, immigration, integration, and two world wars refined English food trends and along with them, the humble little local pub. So head to the bar, sit amongst regulars, grab a pint of your favorite nectar, and I'll tell you where to have some of the best foodgasms in the world's capital city. There are endless fine dining Michelin star experiences to be had here. But London's best kept secret is that the regular authentic British pubs hold some of the best food in town. London's pubs are the lifeblood of this sprawling city. They're the dots that connect its history, its people and its culture. For centuries, the pub was the centre of the community, the place where everyone got their news, their gossip. Some things never change. The thirst for a working pint, which is basically having a couple of ales and a comforting British standard meal during a lunch break any day of the week, Monday to Friday. Fish and chips, bangers and mash, a steak and kidney pie. Of course, this usually results in people half napping at their desk through the afternoon. A midweek evening session after work with mates is a surefire thing also. Sometimes involving a trivia pub quiz, a British pub institution, where teams of friends flex their pop culture brains to win some beers and sometimes, depending on the pub and the toughness of the quiz, a lot of cash. And then of course there's Friday night in the city or in the West End for a few cheeky jars or pints if you will. Saturday or Sunday, usually one of those afternoons, often both, will be spent in a beer garden in the summer or by a roaring fireplace come winter, warming your limbs and wetting your appetites. Sometimes way too much wetting. Londoners really do love a drink. The amount of great ideas that have been had and forgotten in this city's pubs could fill volumes in its libraries. There are 3,540 pubs in London. There are 390 libraries. 10 to 1 sounds about right. So how does the pub explain how London went from the capital of mushy peas to a gastronomic powerhouse? The humble British pub and what it means to London. As with any culture, this one comes with rules. Not pub etiquette, not yet, we'll get to that later. Alehouses, taverns and inns in their beautiful old wooden and gilded glory as we know them today have existed for over 200 years. In principle and in practice, they also exist on four simple rules. The pub, short for public house, must be open to all without membership or residency. It must be allowed to serve draft beer or cider without requiring to serve food. It must have at least one indoor area not laid out for meals. A standing bar, if you will. It must allow drinks to be bought over said bar. You've got those four things? 
you've got a public house. All you have to do is give yours a name. The cock and bottle, the salmon and bell, the ship and shovel, the camel and artichoke, the jolly taxpayer, the defector's weld, the bishop and bear, the boot and flogger, John the unicorn. None of these sound like a tasty choice for a meal, and some of them may not be, but these are all pubs. Some of them at least 200 years old, some much more. The fantastical, often rude, or just plain hilarious names that adorn some of the watering holes in the UK are staggering. The fashion of naming these pubs or public houses in such an off-kilter manner was because of the literacy rate in England in the 13th through to the 18th centuries. It was so low that creative memorable names, always with a descriptive painted sign, were absolutely necessary. That way you'd know where to meet your mates. London is a city with not a straight line in sight. Before the days of Google Maps, and even now sometimes, directions from locals often hinge on knowing where the pubs are. Keep going until you see the laughing gravy. Take a left at the old cow, and if you hit the bishop's finger, you've gone too far. You never meet a date or a friend in a park. You never meet a colleague on the corner of X and Y. You never meet your cousin at the tube station. You meet at the pub. London is a place navigated and defined by its alehouses, and it's been that way for centuries. The oldest pub in the country is a hotly contested claim. Ye old fighting cocks in St Albans, my hometown, claims to have sold ale since 800 AD. London's oldest pubs are the Seven Stars in Holborn and the Prospect of Whitby in Wapping, both are around 500 years old. Some places claim to be even older, but the tall tales you can hear from landlords and regulars alike, some of London's greatest hangouts, must be taken with a pinch of salt. According to some, Charles Dickens drank his way through every single public house in the city. How he had the time or the disposition to write is the real masterpiece. Bottom line, if you're standing in a pub in London, it has a story all of its own, and some of them are even true. We're in Soho, in the centre of London. This tiny part of the West End is the hub of the UK film, television and theatre industries. It's also the city's oldest red light district and it's packed with character. Food-wise, it is a maze of influence, culture and taste. You can go for contemporary Euro cuisine at 10 Greek Street for high-quality seasonal plates or to Bao for its incredible Taiwanese pork buns. Michelin-starred Barafino on Dean Street for world-class tapas and wine. Or if you fancy some spice, head to Ben Chapman's Kiln for smoked Thai barbecued goat. It's one of the best dishes in town. Soho is a great place to be hungry. The area is only one square mile. In that square mile, there are hundreds of restaurant choices and there are 48 pubs. That's one every 30 meters or so. Right now, we're at one of them, the French House, 49 Dean Street. Put simply, it's a Soho institution. Eclectic, quirky, sometimes rowdy, always filled with silver-haired thespians rocking tweed jackets, 
knocking back 30 different types of wine and champagne from a pretty extensive menu. But there are also young, boho-vibed media types spilling out onto the street, and everyone in between. Here, the owners famously refuse to serve pints. This is essentially a wine bar that bent to the whims of the masses, only slightly. But they will pour you half. Unless it's April the 1st, when Suggs, the lead singer of the British ska band Madness, will be your barman. This place sells more Ricard than anywhere else in the country. Grab one of these licorice-flavoured aperitifs if you like, but the choice is yours. This artist's pub has been here since 1891. French General Charles de Gaulle escaped France during the Second World War and also drank here. He rallied the free French forces from exile and supposedly wrote his speech à tous les Français in this pub. Because of its history, locals always call it the French. Writer Dylan Thomas, painter Francis Bacon, actor Peter O'Toole were all regulars here. You'll often find hugging, swaying, sing-alongs, marathon storytelling evenings with locals and unashamed name-dropping. And that is why you go to the French house. But something else is going on in the dining room upstairs. Neil Borthwick, who was trained by the infamously angry Gordon Ramsay, took over the French house's famed upstairs dining room in 2018, taking French cooking to the centre of one of London's most notorious pubs with a menu that uses England's best produce in very creative ways. There's salt cod beignet, braised ox cheek, oysters, ribeye steak and roasted quail. A whole bulb of roasted garlic on goat's curd and toasted bread to start, then quince crumble and custard to end. Fine, good produce. Dining, which tells a cheeky story with a tip of a hat to the legacy of the raucous, drunky old boozer below. Great food in a great, great pub. This is London's ethos summed up in one pub. The truth is that now, London's food scene is filled with these kinds of surprises. It's packed with history, punch and creativity, and it certainly isn't anywhere near the sloppy, tasteless hell everyone says it is. What happened? Regarding England's food history and the creation of the first celebrity chefs. The influence and the power that the British once had in the world seems, these days, to have been reduced to football, talk show hosts, some nice cars and James Bond. But in the decades and centuries before the empire, Great Britain was always influenced by other cultures, especially in its food. The Romans brought cherries, lettuce, peas, wine and better agricultural methods. The Saxons were excellent farmers of herbs. The Vikings brought preserves and smoked fish and meats. The Norman Crusaders, citrus fruits. The Phoenicians, saffron. And in Tudor times, the Far East supplied spices. The Caribbeans brought sugar. Coffee and potatoes came from South America. Tea from India. By 1920, the imperialist British rule was at its height and held sway over 25% of the Earth's population in around 50 countries and territories. British food, however, was still decidedly British. Then, World War II changed everything. This is the most spectacular picture of the war to date. A 
plane carrying the Red Cross flies into the battle area and is used for reconnaissance. This, of course, is contrary to all rules of warfare. The German government has been... Rationing in the 1940s, during the war and after, halted London's restaurants and its love traditional home-cooked food. Sugar, eggs and flour were all limited too, which put a halt on the now infamous Great British baking tradition. No scones, no pies, no cakes. The rationing wouldn't end until the mid-1950s. Good afternoon to all and welcome to Woman in the Home. Marguerite Patton, the first ever celebrity chef, though she hated the term, and her radio show on the BBC The Kitchen Front taught a nation of women how to get the best food out of limited ingredient recipes. And I've two special recipes for you. Elizabeth David, another prototype celeb chef, wowed the country with her book of Mediterranean food in 1950. It's still considered one of the finest cookbooks of all time, according to Rick Stein, Julia Child and Jamie Oliver. During the 50s and 60s, the British class system drew strict lines that could also be seen in the food that people ate. Working-class cuisine was often a pint of lager in one hand and a fish and chips wrapped in yesterday's news in the other, and the upper class was often pictured with extravagant tables of game and wine imported from France or Italy. But the food scene, with help from David, Patton and England's newest residents, was all about to change. Hi everyone, Circa is recruiting new concierges. A Circa concierge is a friend to ask anywhere in the world. Real people, on the ground, never bots. If you want to be a concierge for your city, go to circatravel.com to sign up. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly... Patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. How immigration brought a new flavor to the country. In the 70s and 80s, chefs really started to become household names. TV was now populated with them. Cooks and foodies started going back to old recipes, experimenting with the food of other cultures that began to populate Britain's cities on the wave of post-war immigration. Since the war, the people of this land have seen it change almost out of recognition. One of the biggest changes has been the massive inflow of hundreds of thousands of coloured immigrants. With them, they have brought new and widely incompatible cultures, social customs and habits. There would seem to be about two and a half million immigrants currently in the country. And one prediction for the year 2000 suggests that one in 18 of us will be a coloured immigrant. But seriously, there's nothing like food to show off the benefits of immigration. 
Indian food and Chinese food became popular as a once-a-week takeaway option for baby boomers with growing families of their own. These cuisines had a huge influence on London. The first Chinese restaurant, aptly named The Chinese Restaurant, was opened in Soho in 1908, and Chinese food gained greater popularity in the 50s and 60s after servicemen moved from Hong Kong to London. You can visit Chinatown in Soho for some cheap and cheerful Chinese food, and most famously, the worst service. Wong Kai on Wardour Street got the moniker of the rudest restaurant in the world. It has just become another part of London's foodie folklore. Groups of people would go there just to experience how hilariously bad the staff were, although things have changed now. They've apparently ditched the attitude, so it may be worth a visit. Take Indian food, which is a London staple cuisine, so much so that the UK's national dish is a chicken tikka masala. Interestingly, the dish was invented in a Glasgow restaurant. It's popularly seen as a symbol of multiculturalism. But never mind that. Indian food has been prepared and served in England since the 1800s, but it really increased in popularity during the 50s and 60s, mainly due to the British Nationality Act of 1948. This allowed easy migration from the Commonwealth with very few limits. London's curry scene began to explode, and the scene now is worth an entire episode. This is a world-class curry city. The oldest Indian restaurant in London is the colourful Veriswami on Regent Street in central London. It was opened in 1926. It served Charlie Chaplin, Winston Churchill, and now it holds a Michelin star. It is pricey, but the incredible duck vindaloo alone is worth a visit. If you want to enjoy Indian in a pub setting, there are hundreds of options. The Warwick Arms in Kensington is our pick, though. It serves up regular fare pub grub in the day and pulls out a pretty amazing North Indian menu in the evenings. A rich Kashmiri lamb rogan josh, flavoured with ginger, onions, cardamom, cinnamon, washed down with a bottle of fresh Indian kingfisher beer, or maybe a Jodhpur IPA. In an old wooden pub? That's practically the finest thing in the world. Or you can forget the boozy atmosphere for a second and head to Brick Lane in the East End, which is world-renowned for some incredible curry houses. Nearly a mile long, packed with restaurants, markets and eclectic shops, this is the centre of London's Bangladeshi community. So there's obviously some pretty tough competition just on this street for knockout spice. But our pick lies a little further east on Fieldgate Street. Wander down Brick Lane, grab a samosa to tide you over, and then make your way east, taking in the Whitechapel streets that Jack the Ripper terrorised in 1888. On Fieldgate Street, you'll hit a family-owned restaurant called Tayeb's for lunch or dinner. Expect to wait a bit, but it's really worth it. Their mixed grill with fiery lamb chops, tikka and a succulent kebab is a must. Excellent curries aside, there's also a growing gang of young British Afro-Caribbean chefs who are holding on to their rich food culture and heritage. The Windrush generation was a post-war influx of people from Jamaica, Trinidad and Tobago and other British Caribbean islands who helped fill the labour shortages left in the wake of war. And of course, they also brought their traditional aromatic cuisine to England. 
pepper pots, huge spiced dishes of okra, aubergine and squash, usually cooked for hours with chunks of beef and dumplings, Cuban sandwiches, chicken and rice, goat stew and of course, jerk. That rich peppery seasoning that makes for some of the best barbecue in the world. There are places all over the city, but for the heart of the Windrush influence, head south to Brixton. Jamaican jerk chicken spots around this area are plentiful. Soul food heaven. Has been a strong Afro-Caribbean community in the area for more than 70 years, and the great flavours of the islands are finally getting the foodie love and respect that they always deserved. Expect sweet and hot flavours, lots of reggae music, and lashings of excellent rum cocktails in all of these establishments. We like the Rum Kitchen, Negril, Fish, Wings and Tings, Carib, all for the food and the friendly atmosphere. And we'll list some other great spots in the notes. And of course, in Brixton, you can get it all in a pub too if you want. The No Fuss Ephra Hall often has live jazz and blues, served up with some mean rice and beans, spicy jerk and an epic scotch bonnet pepper sauce. If you want to get super traditional, hit a native pint of red striped lager still bottled and brewed in Jamaica. Pub etiquette, the drinks and a little-known place on the Thames. Take a long walk from Tower Bridge along the south bank of the River Thames to Rotherhithe. It'll take you about 25 minutes. This area of London, east of Tower Bridge, will get less touristy as you go. It's a much shorter walk from Canary Wharf Tube Station as well if you're running late. Head to the Mayflower. It's one of the oldest pubs on the river. It's named as such because the actual Mayflower moored here in July of 1620 to avoid paying taxes further down the river in the city. Then it headed on to Southampton, a port town tucked up on the south coast of England. A few short months later, the ship would arrive on the other side of the Atlantic at Plymouth Bay. The ship's captain, Christopher Jones, lived in this neighbourhood. He's buried here too, a short walk away at St Mary's Church. Over the centuries, the pub remained popular with sailors short on shore leave, and because of this, it's still the only one in the UK licensed to sell postage stamps. Think of the letters that were written by millions of salty dogs at the pub's 400-year-old stone fireplace. Wooden floors, hanging mugs, the clack of glasses. The old pub smell, somewhere between beer and old carpet, hits you. The staff are super friendly, and trust me, you'll learn to love the smell of old pubs. Behind the bar, there is a book in which you can sign and write a letter of your own, but only if you can prove you're a relation of one of the Mayflower's pilgrims. Really. Every pub in this city has a story. In a second, what to order at the Mayflower? But first, let's get a few drinking rules in. One, order at the bar. If you sit down and expect table service in most old boozers, you'll be waiting forever. Two, be specific. If you simply ask for a beer, you may get a laugh. State your size and your brand. 
Keep in mind, pints and halves for beer, ales and ciders. There are even wine sizes now in most pubs, large or small. Three, if you're new, ask what's good, ask what's local. Most landlords will rattle off some gems you may not have gone for, and most places will even offer a shot to taste. Four, get a round in. Head to the bar when everyone you're with is near the end of their drink, alone if you can handle it, and buy a round for the entire table. In big groups, this is sometimes a no-no. Whether you're doing rounds or not will become instantly apparent. And if you're in a round but don't buy a round, you're in trouble. Going against the rule of rounds is punishable by hanging. Five, queue like a champ. The British are amazing queuers, but when the bar is packed on an evening and punters are thirsty, you might get a few pushes and shoves when waiting to get your elbows on the bar. Don't get upset. Most Brits will immediately apologize profusely will not stop and then insist that you go first. Six, when you're ordering Guinness, if you're having it, order it first, always. It needs time to rest. Also, if you're ordering a cocktail at a pub, prepare to enjoy some classic passive aggressive Britishness from the punters around you. Seven, start to tab. This involves leaving your credit card behind the bar in a flimsy plastic wallet in exchange for a card with a number on it. This practice also may end in forgetting entirely to pay for six hours of casual drinking and wandering home only to have to return to the pub the following day to pay your tab, quite possibly with a hangover. It's tantamount to the drinking walk of shame. Okay, back to the Mayflower. On tap here at the pub, there are a fair selection of beers, ales and ciders. There are also local gins and around 17 different wine choices. But here, especially here, you want the sailor's choice. You want a cask ale. The choices at hand change a little over time, so ask what's good right now. You might get offered a bitter, a mild, a brown ale, an old ale. Stout, porter and IPAs were all originally brewed in London too, so choose your poison. Much to the horror of many visitors from other shores, especially but not only Americans and Australians, your cask ale won't be ice chilled. IPAs and lagers, bottled beers too, come cold, but ales are usually richer, deeper and more complex with significantly hoppier, fruitier tastes. They need to be served slightly cooler than room temperature. When you drink an ice cold drink, your tongue is simply unable to perceive the richer flavors. So it's a bit of an insult to drink a chilled ale. You're losing some of the punch of the brew that way. Upstairs, there is a beautiful dining room and you can eat lunch baguettes and classic mains in the evening. Burgers, sausage and mash, fish and chips. And out the back, there is a jetty right onto the water to tuck in some seriously British food. It's a special place for many, many reasons and a little known gem in the canon of the finest London boozers. If you're here on a Sunday, a traditional roast is essential. If the pub culture tells the story of England, then the Sunday roast is the comforting highlight, the climax, the end of the week blowout. The unmissable traditional Sunday roast. The Great British Sunday Roast has become the pub meal. 
Traditionally, it was the after-church lunch. Roast beef, roast chicken, or roast pork, with a mix of veggies, potatoes, and pan gravy. And of course, Yorkshire pudding. A sort of biscuit, but much fluffier and softer than the traditional Southern American version. They're made from an even batter of flour, milk, and eggs, and they puff up to ridiculous sizes, which makes them perfect to mop up all that juicy deliciousness. In recent years, the roast has become the heart of the pub scene. The family-friendly nature of the rare sunny Sunday or even the constant grey afternoon ones has created some amazing opportunities for fantastic gastro pubs. The comforting roast is often a marker of how good a pub actually is, and it's only prepared on Sundays. Now, it comes in all shapes and sizes, from the cheap and cheerful fare of the beer gardens around London's many parks to the finest dining establishments in the whole city. The choices are pretty daunting. The Camberwell Arms in Camberwell does a huge and really tasty roast, as does the Anchor and Hope in Waterloo, and the Canton Arms in Stockwell. The same owners run all three. They have nailed it. Head to the Canton for a salt marsh lamb shoulder, cooked for seven hours and served with potato and olive oil gratin. The brilliantly named cat and mutton in the super trendy neighborhood of Hackney is an off-piece choice for a great roast. Hackney is known for its boutique and art scene, so definitely hit some indie galleries, record stores, markets whilst you're here. The Cat and Mutton is a peculiar pub which does a hefty roast dinner downstairs and creative cocktails upstairs, all of which you can walk off at the Victorian-era Broadway Street market nearby. Like I said, the Sunday roast comes in all shapes and sizes. You can have a Michelin-style version if you like. Head to the Harwood Arms in Fulham for one of their excellent two-person sharing roasts. Choices include slow-cooked deer shoulder, jowl, and loin of pork, and beef sirloin. Their cauliflower cheese is a winner too. There are starters as well, and puddings. British, for dessert. The sweet honey tart is the one. Or if you fancy it, an intense cheese board with some of the finest in all the land. Three courses will set you back about 50 quid. Then there's Hawksmoor a small chain of incredible pub restaurants with an emphasis on great British beef. There are five different locations to choose from in the city. Or if you're staying in an apartment, you could try cooking one of your own. They will deliver all the ingredients you need. It's worth remembering with a full tummy that London is one of the greenest cities on earth as well. You may not think of it in this way, given its gloomy reputation, but in actuality, 40% of the city is public open space and parks. Perfect for walking off this gut-busting food tradition or napping off that final Breton cider that put you over the top. High tea, martinis and one last thing. Look. London is a delicious treasure trove, no matter how deep your pockets are. On a budget, or splurging out in the capital, you'll find some wonderful, creative, and surprising places to eat. From the reasonable and tasty stalls of the trendy borough market, to a regal £500 cup of tea at the Rubens Hotel near Buckingham Palace, there's no shortage of how much you can taste 
earn how much to spend, even on a cup of tea. High tea, or an afternoon cuppa with some little cakes, dating back to the late 1800s, can be enjoyed anywhere from a 70p cup with some chocolate biscuits at a greasy spoon cafe to an entire affair at the fanciest hotel in the city. At the Savoy Hotel on the Strand, it'll cost you £70 for a pot of tea, some scones with clotted cream, and a selection of artfully designed cakes. Having a proper high tea, however touristy, and it's certainly that, is an experience to have at least once. So we'll put some of our favourites in the notes to keep you out of the tourist traps. After tea time, perhaps you'll want to indulge in something equally British, a martini in true Bond style. Pop on your tux and head to Dukes in Mayfair. This is where the novel's author, Ian Fleming, enjoyed many. We're sure, shaken, never stirred. Afterward, wander the streets of historic Mayfair and look for small blue plaques marking the homes of famous residents like Winston Churchill and maybe pretend you're a spy. MI5 was headquartered in Mayfair through most of the Cold War. In fact, the fancy hotel restaurants and bars of the Savoy and the Ritz and Claridge's or the world-renowned Coburg Bar are chic London institutions which speak a lot of where London once was. Outside of these velvet and leather-bound places, the variation of taste in the kitchens in London is simply astounding. The outside influence is palpable. You can smell it. The quality of fresh food has blossomed. The foodie boom is still rippling as chefs, both local and from elsewhere, are pushing the limits of cooking, comfort or fine. And it's all happening in London. But to meet the real people and have a truly British night out or an all-dayer, the food and the drinks in the pubs of old London town are what you eat and drink to be merry, to be local, just like forever and always. So when you're in London, Get yourself down the pub, obviously. Now that we've got your mouth watering, check out the other London episodes in this guide to help you get along with, understand and love this city as much as we do. And maybe some tips for working off all those calories you'll consume while you're here. After all, London has some of the world's best museums, a deep and influential history, amazing theatre, some of the best football in the world, and maybe even better shopping. If you haven't already, you'll want to subscribe to get instant access to the full guide, plus new episodes on a regular basis when you subscribe to Circa. Find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or download the Circa app today. Maybe you'll want to sample our guides for Rome, Iceland, New York, LA, and many, many more, and many more to come. Circa, love the world you live in, and we'll help you explore it. Let's jump into Peppa's world of play. Look for spring flowers, hunt for muddy puddles, and bravely explore exciting places with Peppa play sets. Peppa Pig, inspiring kid confidence.